hello. Welcome to Raising a Beautiful Mind, the podcast. My name is Jen, and I am so thrilled to have you here. I Today is our first podcast. Listen, I'm already nervous. Okay. I have a lot I want to talk about. So if you're anything like me, you are here because mental health is near and dear to your heart. The title of the podcast alone, Raising a Beautiful Mind, means that we are going to be talking about young people, but we have to understand that mental health impacts all of us. It's so pervasive. And I'll tell you more and give you some more statistics here in a few minutes, but I thought I would just tell you a little bit about why why am I doing this? And sometimes I ask myself, why am I doing this? Why me? Mental health for me started a long time ago. And you can tell by the grays in my hair um, that I'm been doing this for a hot second. So when I was young, when I was about 12 years old, it was the first time I thought I wanted to die. I didn't really want to die. I wanted the pain to be over. We call that suicidal ambivalence. My story is not an isolated story. I'm not some exception to the rule. I think more and more we're learning that I'm more of the rule than the exception. We have a lot of people, young, old, every which age, that are struggling with mental health. And unfortunately, mental health has been so stigmatized for such a long time that people really struggle to get the help that they need. And I'll dive into all of that in just a few minutes. Um, For me personally, now as an adult, when you go to have babies, turns out whatever your genetic makeup is, can be very inheritable by your kids. And so my kids, congrats kids, won the lottery of all sorts of mental health stuff, not just for me, but from their generational genetics as well. So as a parent that has navigated the system of mental health and you know, as our babies don't come with manuals, we wish they did. We're all just flying by the seat of our pants. We're doing the best that we can. We're hoping that we can find what they need, but this is a different path and a different journey than if your child's diagnosed with diabetes or if they're um, diagnosed with a heart condition or asthma. Mental health is so stigmatized that our systems are light years behind. They're a total shit show. Um, And it shows and it has a huge impact on, on our kids. So the purpose of this podcast is to elevate the narrative. The purpose of this podcast is to stop dancing around this really important topic that is impacting lives of not just our kids, but our families, our communities, our schools. And when we silence this narrative, then we leave ourselves open for other people hijacking it and creating meaning based on something they know nothing about. And that can happen in a lot of different ways, whether it's behaviors that we see, whether it's criminalization, the justice system. And throughout the course of this um, podcast, I'm going to bring a lot of people on the show to talk to you about their journeys and their experiences, whether it's parents, whether it's professionals, but I'll tell you, I'm in this field, and while I have some fancy letters next to my name, if you ever quickly want to humble yourself and feel incompetent as hell, be a professional, quote unquote, Um, be a professional that is also a parent, and you will feel very quickly humbled. You will feel very quickly like you have no clue what you're doing, because no matter if you're in the field or not, the battle can be really fierce. So I'm going to bring professionals on. I'm going to bring on educators. I'm going to bring on authors. I'm going to bring on people that have experiences that can help us navigate this journey. It's time for us to be lurking in the shadows, hidden in the closets. We can't talk about mental health. That's that kid or that's that family. Not only is it not fair, it's not um, helpful, right? And I'll unpack some statistics in a second, because if you know me, you know that I love research and I'm a super geek when it comes to stats. But we need to hijack the narrative back to reality, because what we know is COVID did not was not the onset of mental health issues. Mental health issues have been a thing forever. Okay, mental health, mental uh, COVID just poured 
fuel on the fire though. So mental health was not a new thing, but I'm glad people are talking about it. The thing we have to be careful of is people are getting more comfortable with a comfortable definition of what mental health is, but we have to recognize there's a lot of intersectionality with mental health too. There's a lot of protective and risk factors that feed into mental health. So your ability to get housing, your access to healthcare, discrimination, racism, homophobia, all of these things and many more impact mental health. And then we know that mental health can impact our health in the future. And so if you go undiagnosed, if you go untreated, it also increases your likelihood of having physical health conditions um, in the future, more of them than you would if you were going to be treated. So I hope that this podcast continues to embrace the the mission that I think a lot of us are on is we really need to start to move the needle of mental health. It shouldn't be okay for anybody that suicide's the second leading cause of death for our young people across the nation. And it's not just kids. So I also train um, thousands of people across the nation on things like school mental health, self-care, systems work. How do we, um, you know, what do we need to embed for high levels of prevention to have the greatest outcomes for those within our networks and our communities and our schools and our, um, you know, places of business? And one of the things I hear the most often from people is, Jen, why is mental health such an issue? It wasn't an issue when I was a kid. And I'd like to pause on that for a second. So tonight, when you um, are getting ready to sit down on the couch, I want you to flip on the news. And I want you to look at adults in the world and how they're behaving, choices they're making. And I think we see a lot of really bold examples of some mental health stuff going on. But to say that mental health wasn't an issue in the past is just not true. It's it's very not true, actually. There have been a lot of um, historical studies that have been done to prove or disprove that thought that mental health wasn't a thing. It absolutely was. The problem with mental health historically, and we maybe didn't see it, is as soon as somebody started to have some complex needs or they were not able to conform, they were not able to um, regulate themselves enough to get by, then they were institutionalized. And so we had a lot of people that were hidden, hidden from the general public um, because they were not deemed acceptable humans, um, whatever that means. And so you can look at uh, 1972, Geraldo Rivera did a wonderful expose about the Willowbrook School. You can just Google that. That's a great example of, of one. Um, and then there were several others and there were several other, you know, um, studies and there were several other, you know, documented pieces about how people were just institutionalized until the 70s. And we started to bring people out of the woodwork. If you're as old as me, though, you were born in the 70s. And that's really not that long ago. So while we've made some civil rights gains when it comes to disability and mental health, we have a long, long, long way to go. So I want to talk a little bit about some facts here. When it comes to mental health, I think these are really important. You know, where the heck is uh, am I coming from? So again, we know that um, COVID was just a... Um, exacerbator of mental health. It didn't start mental health. We know that for the longest time, the stat has been, especially for our young people, about 20% of young people diagnosed with mental health issues. And then you see between 20 and 25% for adults. I argue, and I think it's a strong argument, that those statistics are not accurate. And it has to do with the stigma. Not everybody's getting diagnosed. Not everybody's getting treated. In fact, we know that um, over half of young people before the age of 14 are showing symptoms, but we're not getting people necessarily diagnosed. In fact, there's different research that shows anywhere from eight years to 17 years from onset of symptoms to mental health diagnoses. Let's see, what else do I want to tell you? In 2021, so I just pulled some stats from 
this a couple of these stats were CDC and they're focused really on young people. But I think this speaks volumes to we have to get this epidemic under control. We have over 42% of our young people in 2021 feeling persistently sad or hopeless. Nearly a third um, are willing to say that they've experienced poor mental health, but we know not everybody, again, is reporting and getting treated, especially if it's a young person. And I'll talk about my journey as a parent and the guilt that you grapple with and why sometimes um, that can be even more delayed for a young person. Uh, in 2021, over a fifth, um, oh, excuse me, one in five, 22% of our students had seriously considered attempting suicide. We know, especially for our 11th graders, that number oscillates, depending on what state you're in, can be anywhere from about a fourth to over 30%. That's a lot of kids. And so if we talk about high school, let's just say high school juniors. Let's say you're in a building that has a thousand kids, um, a thousand juniors, just for ease of numbers, or even a hundred. If we're talking about 25%, which would be on the low end of that, if you have a thousand juniors, you're looking at about 250. Now that's juniors, then the rest of the grades aren't much lower than that. So I just mentioned 22%. If you have a thousand kids, that's 220 kids. If you have a hundred kids, that's about 200 or about 22. So if we can't walk into schools and point out who th those people are that are having suicidal ideation, then we have a problem. The thing is, as a parent that has also walked through this journey, one of the hardest pieces for me um, as a parent is while I'm in this field too, not recognizing signs, not seeing signs, um, or justifying signs. Like, oh, that's just because of that. Or we stopped doing that because we said we didn't like um, you know, the, the times it was too much, um, or, you know, we hurt something. And so as a parent, that's also supposed to be a professional, it hit me in the gut twice as hard, um, that I think it would have, you know, I don't know. I think, I think it just, it, it's one of the hardest things is when, you realize that your young person has been leading this double life and this double life out of survival, this double life where your young person feels like, you know, I'm not good enough, or I just can't cope. There's so much, but I feel so alone. And I don't know even how to bring that conversation up with somebody. I'm a burden. And so it's just easier to handle the pain this way than to try to get help. Or I've been trying to get help for years and nobody has been able to help. So maybe it's just easier to, um, you know, alleviate the burden. And that's one of the most heartbreaking things, um, I think, for most parents is, how come I didn't see this? How come I didn't know this? We want so desperately for our kids to tell us everything, but that's not necessarily realistic. And so we have to make sure that we have lots of layers in, in our child's life. And that includes other adults and friends and peers and continuing to build their own skill capacity for stress management, for mental health, and then high levels of prevention. So being able to have access to high quality care from an early age that's really rooted in outcomes, measurable outcomes, it's rooted in evidence-based um, research and treatment protocols versus what I think a lot of us have been um, faced with, which is instead a ad hoc system that is just trying to survive as a system instead of thrive. I think when we talk about some of these stats too, you know, we're talking about a lot of kids. We're also talking about adults too. It's not just our young people. In fact, depending on where you live, your adult statistics can fluctuate all over the place. But one of the trends that we continue to see, it's not new, is farmers, agriculture, construction. They tend to be male-dominated fields. Those suicide rates continue to soar um, to epic levels. And so there's some things that we need to continue to unpack. But self-reliance continues to be one of the things that comes up in research. So if you are a person that values or thinks that the skill is I'm just going to suck it up and deal with it by myself. That's actually not um, a strong 
skill as being able to ask for you, what you need when you need it. So that's actually, when you think about with employability too, right? You would never want an employee to just try to suck it all up and not be as productive, not be as effective as working collaboratively with others and being able to ask for help. And so some of the research that, a lot of the research that we've seen continues to connect self-reliance to that too. One of the things, and I was really, I was not surprised as I was preparing for this podcast and doing some research and wanting to have some stats. I want to share with you a couple that I think really hit the nail on the head as to why I'm doing this podcast. Because I think we have a lot of voices for a lot of other communities, whether they're mental health conditions, whether they're medical conditions, or I shouldn't say mental health conditions, I meant medical conditions. We have a lot of organized community that is fearlessly, unapologetically, unbashedly um, advocating for that experience. Mental health is a little bit harder because as a parent, because of the stigma, we feel guilt, we feel shame, we go on this journey where we're just desperately, you know, trying to find resources for our children or child. I was just talking with a parent last week or the week before, and she likened it to being in the Hunger Games. And I think that really hits the nail on the head because if you have not walked this journey, if you have not sat vigil next to your child's bed after an attempt, if you have not experienced a child with big feelings in school that maybe gets in trouble a lot, if you have not experienced trying to find a therapist for your child and having to wait you know, not just days or weeks, but potentially months. If you're trying to get you um, your child a, a neuropsych evaluation and you have not had to wait months for that, then it can sometimes hit a little bit different if you have not actually walked this path um, as a parent. And so when we're talking about, you know, statistics and we're talking about, you know, as I was preparing for this and part of the reason I want to do it is this all needs to be elevated. We need to be talking about this more. People need to be pissed off more. If you have not read, I have a great book and I don't actually have a hard copy of it because I read it on my Kindle um, by Dr. Tom Insel. He used to run the National Institute for Mental Health, NIMH, and he wrote a book called Healing Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. And as a parent, I've never felt more seen in that book. If you haven't read it, it's a great, great read. But one of the things he talks about, or he talks about lots of good things in that book, but he talks about um, if you had, if we collectively as a world had an epidemic that was a physical condition and we treated it the way that we treat mental health, people would be losing their minds. So if we had an epidemic of I don't know, blood disorders. And all of a sudden, and it's not mental health isn't all of a sudden, it all shot up. We had the numbers that we do for mental health. People wouldn't just be passively sitting by hoping for the best. Um, I'll talk throughout the you know podcast on different episodes about my own journey, but I'm one of the most well-educated and well-connected people when it comes to youth mental health in my state, for sure. And then with the, even within my region, and yet I continue to be surprised every time I need to find services or I need to navigate some help. It is the most isolating, dismal, frustrating, and exhausting experience on the planet. And we don't have the same frameworks. We don't have the same organized system set up. We don't have the same organizations with the same depth and expertise, helping people navigate and advocates and research the way that we do other medical conditions. So when we talk about research alone, I wanted to share this with you. So I pulled up, I just was curious, how much are we investing in other medical conditions versus mental health? And how many people are impacted recognizing that I um, assert that we do not have, we have a very low number that we identify of people with meta mental health conditions. The number is much higher given the stigma because not everybody is going to get 
diagnosed, nobody, not everybody is going to get help. Therefore, all the numbers aren't reported. So in 2021, the National Institute of Mental Health indicated that 57.8 million people in the United States have a mental health condition. CDC also shared a report um, this year regarding 2022 that nearly 50,000 Americans died by suicide in 2022. And we know that it continues to be the second leading cause of death for our young people, the first being accidents. We also know that for about 46.3 million people have um, what's considered substance abuse disorder but 94% of them did not receive treatment. And that's from SAMHSA, for those of you looking, wanting to know about sources. We also know that having a mental health disorder, especially untreated, impacts and increases the likelihood of negative physical health conditions and outcomes. For instance, People with severe mental health disorders, especially those not treated, tend to die 10 to 20 years earlier. And that has to do with not the mental health condition, but the physical conditions that were exacerbated from a long time of not getting mental health needs met. And so I'll talk in another episode about what chronic stress does to your body. Individuals with depression have a 64% greater chance of developing coronary artery disease. If you have schizophrenia or bipolar, it can elevate the risk of heart disease by 85%. We also know that um, depression increases the likelihood of type 2 diabetes by 60%. And then if you have depression, you're also more apt for things like immunocompromised, arthritis, asthma, heart issues, obesity. So when we keep that in mind and just keep keep this number, 57.8 million, okay? So 57 million people reported with mental health conditions. So when we look at then, I pulled up, I went to the, um, there was a report from the National Institutes of Health. It was a just national report about how much money is going into each of the institutes or centers. And it it divides them up by, you know, cancer and diabetes and heart and um, eye institute, dental institute, mental health, all of it. I'm going to have a sip of my uh, coffee here really quick. And this is where I wouldn't say I'm surprised, but I looked at this and went, oh, yeah, should we be shocked that we have some of the outcomes that we do? And this is what I tell people. When you look at what mental health is, when you look at how effective prevention is. When you look at how little prevention we're doing, it really should be more shocking to us that there aren't more people incarcerated, there aren't more people uh, facing houselessness, that there aren't more people with food insecurity, because all of these layers are um, incredibly relevant when we don't do high levels of prevention for mental health, because mental health tends to be at the core of a lot of other issues. And again, I'll talk about those in, in some other episodes, but here's what I found. So those 57 million people, the National Institute of Mental Health, let's see here, in 2023, they were authorized $2.3 billion of funding. And that's a lot. I mean, I'm not I'm not frowning down on that. 2.3 billion, that's something to, there's something to be said about that. But here's the thing. I have, um, I, as I continue to age, I continue to also have a variety of different health issues, family members. I have the utmost respect for the research and the commitment that is happening for all health issues. All health issues absolutely deserve every cent that I'm about to talk about that is coming to them, plus a lot more. The thing, just keep in mind, my argument or my request is that we we continue to remember that mental health can also feed and drive some of these other conditions that we're seeing. And so when we look at holistic prevention, we want to make sure we keep mental health at the forefront of that too. So again, the NIMH 
is funded about $2.3 billion for about 57 million people. Another one I wanted to look at was allergies, because allergies tend to be a big one. A lot of people have allergies. And I was right, about 50 million people um, are diagnosed as having allergies at some point in their life. The thing I thought was fascinating, though, was for 2023, they're allocated a $6.5 billion budget. That is three times the budget allocation for mental health. Three times. And while allergies, people having allergies, 50 million across the course of their life, that's a lot. Mental health has 57 million. The other one I didn't mention is alcoholism on here. And I don't know if that refers to more substance abuse or why we just have alcoholism on there. They that attributes about 46 million people, and some of those could be the same from the the mental health diagnoses. They have they're allocated about 597 million dollars, which is still a lot. But when we know that we have 46.3 million people that are um, diagnosed with a, a substance disorder, that's that seems very, very small. The other one I wanted to look at too was diabetes because diabetes is also in my eyes, or I assumed was very prevalent and it is 34.2 million people have diabetes and that would be type one or type two. And so that's about, that's not less than half. I'd say that's, I, I should have ran the numbers. I know number of people right now are going to be like, come on lady, it's 42% or whatever. I think it would be about 40, maybe 30% less. Their allocation for their budget for 2023 is $2.3 billion. So that's the same as mental health for a significant reduction of people that it's impacting. Now, I don't think it's fair to say the number of people being impacted, that's how we're doing money. And again, all of these medical conditions, I'm looking at all of these. Cancer Institute, $7.3 billion. Heart uh, $3.9 billion. I said diabetes, $2.3 billion. Neurological disorders, $2.8 billion. Allergies, $6.5 billion. All of these so important, so important. They deserve every cent and so much more. Mental health, though, $2.3 billion for five, or 57 million people definitely starts to paint a picture, though, of if we are not investing in prevention, which would be mental health research to better understand diagnosis, to better understand treatment, to help reduce the number of people that's lives are being impacted, destroyed, or lost to mental health, we need to reevaluate where we're investing. Okay, and that's a big thing. So, when we're talking about, you know, as I looked at that, though, as a parent that has been on this journey and <laughs> cried a lot of tears, banged my head against the wall, when I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah, that tracks, though, right? That tracks. Because until we continue to organize, until we continue to elevate voices, until we continue to come out of the shadows that our kids, there's nothing wrong with our kids, we're not bad parents, all these things that we hear all the time, right? Discipline more, suspend them. All of these things that we people have been going on for years, that this is how we solve problems. This is how we do it because that's how we've always done it. When we know that that hasn't worked for us, it's time that we start to really invest to figure out the parts that do work. And so some examples, Indiana University, March 2023, came out with some research that is very exciting for a blood test for anxiety. I, because I'm a complete geek, read the research all the time that's coming out. And every week I'm seeing research on biomarkers for substance abuse or biomarkers for 
depression and you know that there's different types of sub subtypes of depression i think one of the things we're going to continue to see in the mental health field is the dsm-5 that's the diagnostic manual so if i bring my child to a psychiatrist and they ask us a bunch of questions then they maybe give us some uh, you know surveys to fill out or assessments then they go back to the dsm-5 which is kind of a I don't want to say choose your own adventure, but here are the diagnostic criteria to diagnose X, Y, and Z, which is very different than if you have diabetes or you have asthma or you have allergies or you have cancer. There tends to be a very um, definitive test that says, yes, you do. No, you don't. This is how bad it is. This is how good it is. This is where we're going. Mental health is different. And as of now, there is not that standard of care, which then can make treatments also more of a crapshoot. So investing in all of this, as I'm seeing all of these stats, I'm like, uh, yeah, we need to be pouring into resources. It shouldn't be a crapshoot going to the doctor going, you know, my child, your child may have. And when I used to be a special ed teacher and I worked with kids that had behavior and emotional disorders, inevitably. Every kid that came to me would have a laundry list of diagnoses, and they would all read something like, most of them were on the spectrum, autism spectrum of sorts, um, ODD, uh, oppositional defiance disorder, conduct disorder, anxiety, ADHD, potentially depression. Um, and then they would have what we, what used to be called PDD-NOS, Pervasive Developmental Disorder Not Otherwise Specified. And it was kind of this catch-all diagnosis that we're not so sure, we're just going to throw this on the kid and call it good. So with this laundry list of diagnoses that pretty much say we're not entirely sure, but we know it's like all in this general vicinity, the child would also come with just as many medications. So we're going to treat this and we're going to treat this and we're going to treat this and maybe going to therapy, maybe not, not really using any measurable outcomes. Treatment is pretty standard across the board. Everybody gets CBT. And CBT, if you're not familiar, cognitive behavioral therapy is the considered the gold standard, but it's also not the only evidence-based treatment out there. So if you are a parent listening to this and you are in your journey with your child, whether you're just starting out, whether you're in the middle, whatever that is, wherever you are at, here are some things that for me, I recommend to all parents that I work with and I consult with to help help them navigate. And I'll put some links in the podcast or you know below here because I have put a lot of stuff on my website and um, throughout Mansana Wellness Solutions is the, is the company that I run so that parents have access to some of these tools. My goal and my mission is how do I help you streamline your journey? How do I help bridge, build bridges so that you do not have to A, do this alone and you are actually able to get some good stuff fairly quickly. I have walked the journey as a parent and it is relentless and exhausting. I have built what I needed decades ago. It's the must have resource for every parent raising a child with mental health needs. The Learning Lab. Evidence-based learning, a rapidly growing library so you do not have to stay up at night trying to find high quality information about countless topics. It is not just made by somebody at a company sitting in an office that has never had to walk this. It is made by an expert and a parent. Why? The part that for me is the game changer is community because you can talk to other people about this, but if you have not walked the walk, it is really hard to be able to receive the support that you need. This is the roadmap you have been desperately seeking. You do not have to chase and wonder anymore. You have your own village behind you to get the real answers for the real problems. And it all starts with just a click of the button. You could go to mymensana, so M-Y-M-E-N-S-A-N-A.com. The thing I've been waiting for the most, you need to have now. So for parents, here's a few things that I would highly, highly, highly recommend. First is make sure 
as you're choosing your professional, one of the things that I think sometimes we as parents, we feel like any professional is the best professional. And that that is not always the case because you can have the best therapist on the planet, award-winning, amazing, but sometimes personalities for whatever reason just don't click. And that's okay. What I would say is pay attention when you're going to, to um, choose mental health professionals, whether it's med providers, whether it's therapists, you have to take all the factors into consideration. If you're in a rural community and you have one provider for four hours away from you, you may be um, feeling backed into a corner. You want to, especially with the med provider, take what you can get. But in the advent of telehealth, you also want to explore some options that way too. What I recommend for people when you go to choose these providers or as you're, you know, in the journey and questioning, like, is this the best one? Psychology Today is a wonderful tool that allows you to do some filter searches, be able to discern, look at pictures, see back educational backgrounds, treatment modalities, expertise. Do they take insurance? Do they not? I don't get it. I'm not a paid affiliate by or any affiliate by psychology today. I'm also working on a, an, a, um, a an AI sort of a thing to help parents um, navigate some of this as well, too. So if you're interested in knowing more, make sure you sign up for my newsletter because that's the best way to get it. Once you have a short list of professionals that you want to use. I also highly recommend that with your child, since they're the ones that are going to have to have the most buy-in, that they get to have some autonomy in choosing too. So if there's some non-negotiables for you, like, hey, if they don't accept insurance and you need them to, don't put them on the short list for your child to choose. Sometimes kids want to look at pictures of people because there's a certain safety piece, right? I'm going to be more likely to buy into somebody that looks like they're safe. Now, granted, we all know looking at a picture doesn't really like give us the best judgment. But again, you want your child to have some buy-in. So collectively, hopefully, you can choose somebody. The first thing I would do before you officially say, yeah, for sure, we're doing this 100% buy-in, is do a mini interview. Ask them, like, can we do a consultation? We can Zoom it if they're far away. We can show up just for even like 20 minutes, even a phone call. This will help the process. A lot of times people buy into a professional before they vetted them and then they meet them or they, you know, we just did the intake and we, I wish I would have met them first because I would have known that this is or isn't a great fit because of X, Y, and Z. And then it also offers the therapist an opportunity because sometimes therapists or mental health providers, they, um, they need to have autonomy too in the clients that they're taking. And so when they're able to meet you ahead of time and just even have a little bit of a chat and kind of understand where you're at and what you're seeking, they'll be able to also navigate, yes, we are a really good fit. I think this is going to be great. Or, you know, the expertise that you are seeking, I have, maybe they can give you a referral. I have a colleague over here that I think would be better suited to help support your family. I have, and I will include it in the link below, um, a great article that also provides you some questions to ask because I think that can be very overwhelming too. Number two, as a parent, this is my this is my next recommendation. So you have your professionals, you feel good about them. I would also, especially in that interview, ask them if they collaborate with other professionals. The second thing I would do is sign releases. I would sign releases so that your therapist and your med provider can talk to each other. I would also sign releases for the schools. And I know I get it. For some of us as families, if you've had a negative experience with the school, you're like, ah, I don't want them to know X, Y, and Z. I don't know who I can trust. And I get it. One of the things I always encourage parents, though, is find somebody in the school that you trust. Is there a school counselor who's more than likely been trained to be a really strong advocate for your child? Does the school have a school psychologist? Does the school have a social worker? Is it an administrator? Is it a teacher that you have really bonded with and you feel like they have your child's back? 
it's okay to have an honest conversation and say, listen, I want you to be able to connect with my child's therapist because that therapist is going to provide them with strategies. And then if there's, especially if your child has some behaviors, you want to make sure that the data can flow freely back and forth and you don't have to play telephone operator because the lingo that the school is using and the lingo that the mental health person is using, they're able to speak it fairly quickly and effectively so that you don't have to be the middle person. The reason that that's important too is that you want your child to have this comprehensive, strong, trusted team. And I understand though, if that trust piece isn't there, I would strongly encourage you to choose one person and say, I'm trusting you with this information, but I would prefer that other people not know this or not have access. In the release, you can say, Mrs. Jones and Mrs. Jones only is talking to so-and-so, and then also have a conversation with a therapist. You know, I'm, I'll be honest, you know, we've had this experience go on. I don't feel like I trust the school a lot. And so I would feel better if you erred on the side of caution in terms of what you shared with them, but I really want you know, little Susie to have the best outcomes possible at school. And so, especially if Susie has a 504 or an IEP, you want to make sure that your, your professionals are also weighing in on that. Speaking of IEPs and 504s, if your child has a mental health diagnosis, they qualify for a 504 plan. A 504 plan, again, I'll put um, a link in the, the, uh, down below this video, but a 504 plan allows them accommodation. So it's think of it as a kind of a light plan. It's not going to be the same as an individualized education plan, but it's going to allow them accommodation such as, you know, your child needs a break if they get overstimulated and they need to go to the nurse's office, eat a quick snack, and then they can come back. Your child needs extended time for tests. They need, um, to have a quiet space, you know, when they're doing homework or tests or what have you. They maybe have some other health issues too, and they need some accommodations and the ability to do that without repercussions. If your child um, with their mental health condition in the 504 that is not feeling like enough, or you're worried that they have more needs or disabilities beyond that, you can request an IEP um, evaluation for your child through Child Find. And the way that you want to do any of this is you always want to put it in writing. So it's great practice to call the school to you are building relationships. I love it, but you want to have a paper trail and the emails don't have to go in, into huge depth, but the email, you know, Dr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so, I am requesting that my child receive a special education evaluation in the area of their social, emotional, uh, mental, behavioral health. Um, this is the diagnosis we have. We've been on the 504 plan. Any other information that you want to share about them? And I look forward to... Um, working with you to set up the time for that that meeting the first meeting you have to have a meeting because you have to sign a consent so per law all children that we suspect of a dis disability so i'm suspecting my child has a disability i would like an evaluation you then have to sign once you sign, then they will do, and it depends on which state you're in, if you're a categorical or non-categorical. Also, if your child has had a neuropsych evaluation or any evaluation, I would strongly inc um, encourage including that. Once the evaluation has been done, they will also be at the same time doing an intervention if there is not an intervention. By law, we require an intervention. So let's say that you know, um, we have a child that is a wanderer and we're able, and maybe it's a brand new teacher out of school that, you know, is still working on classroom management too. And we can have somebody go in and, you know, set up maybe a little visual card on the desk for the child. And then the child's no longer wandering and 
all of the issues that had been happening are no longer and everything is good, then that intervention is really taking care of the issue. And it's not so much a disability that um, is preventing that child from being successful. If you are in that place and you still don't agree, please you can call me and I will happily help you navigate some of these situations. Oftentimes, especially if you have a child that is struggling with some behavior stuff, they may be struggling with some academic stuff. Depending on the school and depending on who's doing evaluations and how they're being done, hopefully, if your child is needing an individualized education plan, they're getting that. Again, if that's not happening, don't hesitate to reach out and I can help you navigate some of that as well because it can feel really overwhelming as a parent and there's this lingo that's being talked and I don't know what I'm supposed to know and I don't know what I'm supposed to ask and I don't know how this is supposed to go and I don't know how to advocate. Um, and so I like to be able to help parents, especially when we're talking about school mental health stuff because that's that can be such a, a frustrating area. So that's number two. The, there's about a thousand other things that I would love to recommend to families. And I will recommend them as we go throughout this podcast. But I think that the, the, one of the largest ones is we often talk about your child and your child may be struggling and your life may be struggling because of that. But I think the biggest thing that I really want to drive home for you as families, as parents, as caregivers, is you have to take care of yourself. And I know that's easier said than done. Some of you are dealing with incredibly complex issues. You're dealing with um, everything from spending most of your time on the phone trying to find providers, trying to find care, trying to find treatment, to then dealing with a child that is dysregulated, a child that is not getting their needs met, and it might be manifesting itself into aggressive behaviors. It might be lying, substance abuse, um, disciplinary issues at school, on top of a thousand other things. I get that. I absolutely get that. One of the biggest things that I recommend to parents is if you are on this journey with your child, you need your own village. You need to have a therapist. I just can't emphasize that enough. And I know a lot of us, myself included, there's times where things get too busy and I can't go, but I still have somebody and I go when I can. And there's some moments where I'm going twice a week and I'm not kidding because there have been some of the toughest, toughest times. And then there's some times where I go to monthly or I say, you know what, I need a break for summer and I'll hit you back in August unless the world falls apart. Then you need to have people in your circle that you trust. And this one is important too, because sometimes we feel that family, because they're blood, they're the best people and they absolutely can be, but they need to be people that aren't going to judge you and they need to be people that you trust. So if it's that, you know, uncle that you're wanting to lean into, but every time you talk to him, he says, well, you just aren't disciplining enough. You know that that's not the thing and you need somebody that's not going to try to love you by fixing it and telling you what you're doing wrong. You need people that are just really good listeners. You need people that can say, wow, that's a lot. I don't know how you're doing that. Can I make you dinner? You need those kinds of people. So Make sure you're surrounding yourself with that and with a community. And if you have just found us, we also have what's called the Learning Lab. So I built something based on what I needed two decades ago, a community. I needed other people that get it because one of the hardest, most isolating things is feeling like you may have these amazing people around you, but they just don't understand because they haven't walked that journey. It's not their fault. Or having a lot of judgmental people that say, well, you should be doing this, or why aren't you doing this? That's really not helpful. <laughs> so I built what's called the Learning Lab because it has community of people that get it, but it also has streamlined learning. So for people like me that stay up late at night trying to find where answers, I put it all in one place. So we've got the we've got learning modules. We have a class on healing just for parents. What do you need? How do you ground into yourself? This is stuff that it's not anywhere else. Trust me, I've looked. It's nowhere. 
how do I find high quality evidence-based learning resources? So not just Ma and Pa's website, you know, on what I think bipolar is. It's actual research-intensive evidence-based learning, a class for parents, a community with other parents that get it, and so much more, a resource share, what's working for you. And here's, I'm hoping going to be the best part is a resource provider mapper. One of the things that pisses me off the most is in, I'm recording this in 2023. In 2023, why the F do we not have a comprehensive resource and provider mapped out system yet? We have psychology today and it's awesome, but it there's a lot more out there besides what's offered on psychology today. And we need to know what's working for you. I wanna know what works for others. And so it's a grassroots effort. There's nothing else like it, um, but it's going to require parents to and caregivers and families to put in, you know, and what works for one person might not work for another. And that's okay too, but it's an opportunity for us to have something that says, you know, this is where we went. This is what we did. Um, and I can tell you, based on my own experiences, if you're ever like, hey, where do you go for X, Y, and Z? I know some, not definitely not all. And I can tell you some places not to go. And I can tell you some places to go that are absolutely exceptional that need to be the standard across the country. So I'm really excited. I'm really, really excited to have shared the learning lab with you. I'd love for you to click on and join us. It just launched. So it's a brand new baby. And if you're looking for, you know, some um, part-time gigs, I've got some opportunities that way too. I'm really pumped about this podcast because this is what I've always needed. I've needed a community and a space to learn, to be able to connect with others the point of this podcast is to be real. It's going to be real and raw. Um, I have no no skin in the game to bullshit around anymore, and neither do you. We're racing. A lot of us are racing and feel like we're fighting every day to not just keep our kids alive, but give them a world that allows them to thrive. So I hope you'll join me. So much excitement and fun up ahead, but I hope this has been helpful. Please reach out if there's ever anything I can do to support you, but I'm really excited. <laughs>